everyone, I'm Natalie Alexander, and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. As you may know already, our podcast aims to explore multilateralism from different angles and different views. And today's episode welcomes Glendis Luger, Professor of International History at the University of Sydney. She's the author of the book Internationalism in the Age of Nationalism, among other publications, and her research interests span from, of course, nationalism and internationalisms to global and international history, women and gender, and more. She was here at the library recently for a debate on the evolution of multilateralism, perspectives from the global south. We have a video recording of that library talk. If you'd like to check it out, it's linked in the episode description. And of course, we did ask Glenda to sit down with us for a conversation in the podcast while she's here all the way from Down Under. And in this episode, we dive into her thoughts on the meanings of multilateralism and internationalism. What are the differences and connections between the two, and why is this important? We also look at her views on how multilateralism has evolved over the past century, how it's impacted such areas such as gender equality and vice versa, and also how multilateralism is linked to our everyday lives and our understanding of our place in the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Have a great day and a great listen. Professor Glenda Sluga, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. You're all the way here from the University of Sydney in Australia, where you are a professor of international history. So, of course, you're not here just for the podcast. You've also come for a library talk today in the library on the question of the evolution of multilateralism, perspectives from the global south. But to get listeners up to speed, what fascinates you so much about international history? How did you get started? That's a really good question. I mean, most of us, I think, are interested in history that helps us to understand our place in the world and to find out how did we get here. And I started thinking about the history of the UN, actually, the United Nations, around about the time in the late 1990s when it was really having a heyday of interest Post-Cold War, there was an idea, I think, that the nations of the world could, could unite again and use the instruments of, the multilateral instruments of the United Nations to solve the world's problems. So I grew interested in that history of how the United Nations came to exist. And it's very interesting that really before the 1990s, there was very little historical interest in international institutions at all. And international history tended to mean the history of foreign policy or diplomacy. And really since the 1990s, coinciding with the growing post-Cold War interest in the UN, historians like myself started to think, actually, these institutions have a really important place in the international past. And the closer you looked and the further back you went, the longer history you discovered of interest in international institutions, international thinking, and in the significance of this international version of multilateralism for addressing the really important challenges the world faced, whether it was war or hunger 
or in fact, uh, increasingly by the later 20th century, the environment. Hmm. And within this field or, or study of international history, what are the key topics of research and interest that you have? My own, uh, the extent to which these international institutions have been part of national histories, and I can explain that as we go on, to say that national, the history of nations are never just the history of those nations themselves, but always implicated in and part of the history of these international institutions and vice versa, and the ways in which there has been a long history of popular interest, particularly among women and among the disenfranchised more generally, in international institutions and international ideas as, as the means for gaining rights and a voice that they might not have had in nations. And then I think there is the question that is harder to address for an historian, but I think really important one about what is the future of these institutions in our current world and what can history tell us about the, the status of the international order built around these international institutions? A quick icebreaker game before we begin the depth of the discussion. Could you share three words that you feel describe history and what it means to you? Right. So, orientation. If you think about someone who has Alzheimer's, they've lost a sense of the past and it means they can't orientate themselves. So history is about orientation. The second one is transformation, in the sense that history, unlike other social sciences, I think, allows us to go back and see what wasn't inevitable. At what point did we go down a certain path, but maybe there were other paths we could have taken. So that view of the past leads us to the possibilities of transformation. The third one I might choose is liberation, because I think in both those contexts, history can be liberating. Uh, if you think about the role that history has played for women, for example, uh, the more that we've discovered the, ro the roles of women in the past, the extent to which they've been hidden and, and reclaim those roles, the more liberating that has been for women in terms of thinking about what they can do in the present and in the future. Fantastic. Well, there's so much that we could talk about in this episode, but we're going to focus on your insights into what you know about multilateralism and internationalism, because we do, of course, mark the centenary of multilateralism in Geneva this year as well as last year. So let's let's get started. From your research and your your experiences, how do you define internationalism and multilateralism? What are the differences? That's a really important question because. Uh, the ways in which they're connected uh, are what count, I think, for this centenary. Now, an historian might say to you, the history of multilateralism is much longer than 100 years. It goes back to Westphalia and the 17th century and the attempts by various countries to, create a, to negotiate a treaty that is between more than two countries. So any treaty between more than two countries is multilateral, right? And the old international history, which was about foreign policy and diplomacy, would have said that's the beginning of multilateralism. Or you could have said the Congress of Vienna in 1814 was the turning point in terms of multilateralism because European states agreed between themselves not only to, uh, to the conditions of a peace but to the importance of anti-slavery or anti-slave trade specifically, the rights of, of religious toleration and various other kinds of 
rights that normally would not have been part of a peace treaty. And already you have embedded in that a kind of international thinking. What the centenary of the League of Nations tells us is that by the 20th century, multilateralism was increasingly identified with these much broader, deeper, profounder ideas about what the scope of multilateralism could be, what it could achieve. And that is because it was influenced by internationalism. Now, there are different kinds of internationalisms. There's communist internationalism, but there was a particular liberal internationalism that was about the capacity of international law, of international institutions, to and international ideas, international thinking, to bring about radical change and to tackle the dangers of militarism brought about by excessive nationalism. And the centenary of the League really is a centenary of the first moment in which a broad membership institution, the League of Nations and also its subsidiaries like the International Labour Organization is created in this image of international thinking and under the umbrella of internationalism as an idea. And that combination really drives the international international-based multilateralism of the 20th century. And it's that connection that I think in the 21st century has come asunder. So multilateralism is now really important as an idea again, but not necessarily with the international attached. Hmm. Okay, that's an interesting point. So going even further than that, why do you think it's important to know the difference between these two terms, especially in practice? Because we are in danger of forgetting the extent to which in the 20th century it was the combination of international thinking and multilateralism that created the, the benefits of the international order as we know it for a broader segment of, of the world's population. And multilateralism wasn't just about trade. The important thing, it was not just about globalisation and trade, it was about these other ideas, about rights, sometimes economic rights, about tackling environmental challenges, about the significance of aiming for peace, for, for avoiding wars. So, you know, the more you look into the conceptual framing or the ideological framing of, of multilateralism in the 20th century, the more you find the importance of these ideas. And they're not just important for a particular group of people in those institutions. They're important more broadly. And you find lots of popular associations during the First World War, during the Second World War, across the world that are really generated by this engagement with the possibilities of an international multilateralism. It pre-exists the League. You know, recently, I think it was last year, the Secretary of State, the American Secretary of State, started attacking multilateralism and sort of singled out the Universal Postal Union. The Universal Postal Union, I think, is from 1878, around about then. And so older than the League, longer history. And it, but it stands for that broader principle of not just coming together to agree certain rules about stamps and taxation that allows the movement of letters and money through the world um, after the creation of the Postal Union but actually also the principles of arbitration that mean that states can discuss and have dialogue and solve larger problems through dialogue and the importance of these intergovernmental institutions they really are. Because through the 20th century, they're not about 
vague internationalism or vague international multilateralism. They're about nation or state-based membership of international institutions. That means that states have a forum, the world's states have a forum in which to tackle the major issues. And I think we've lost that sense of the combination of the multilateral and the international as we go forward into the 21st century as important. And, uh, and the centenary is important if it reminds us of that combination. Moving on then to, to the centenary that we're, we're marking, um, I'm assuming that the terms multilateralism and internationalism are not static either. Uh, as we mark this centenary, what are your views on the past 100 years of, of so-called modern multilateralism? Has, has it evolved? What kind of stories or experiences can you share in this regard? So, I mean, even the word multilateralism is not very old. It's a product of the latter 20th century, not the earlier. And whereas internationalism is older. So inter internationalism, well, the word international was invented in the late 18th century, around the 1780s, and internationalism is around by the mid-19th century and onwards. But multilateralism appears much later, interestingly enough. Now, what's interesting, and I've said, you know, that combination of multilateralism and international is what is characteristic of the 20th century. But it's also true that in the 20th century, you can see kind of periods when, in the around the First World War, when the League is created, people do talk about the international all the time. And they talk about international thought. And they talk about, you know, the Carnegie Endowment for Peace based in the US wants to set up international thinking spaces in libraries. And so international is really in vogue. By the 1930s, the term that's being used for really the same kind of concept is world government and world citizenship. So we've got a shift in language, which also is accompanied by, I think, an expanding ambition around the, the possibilities of multilateralism. So going further than the League of Nations, creating a United Nations that is more ambitious and more inclusive and more ambitious. And then by the 1970s, 80s, you're into the realm of the global. So the global is really what becomes the, the important word for defining the ambitions around multilateralism. And that shift is really important because, again, it's, uh, it reflects a new way of thinking about the world. Some people say it's because rocket ships were able to send back images of the Earth and people thought more in terms of global terms. But it also became confused from that time on with globalisation because it coincides with a moment when anything to do with multilateral international thinking becomes more and more about trade and money and the liberalisation of trade and all the other stuff, rights, economic rights, social rights, are get, get left behind. And I think that's just as important a part of the story of the 100 years of this international multilateralism as anything. That that's one of those moments when we could see other paths that might have been taken. So we get to a point that is the present where we only really think about the global, uh, as globalisation, as about trade and money and, and bad in that way because it doesn't consider human needs, social needs, it's undermining, it's threatening the fabric of certain societies. So I think being very historically specific is, you know, is one of the things an historian can do to really make us see what the potential of multilateralism has been, but also where it's, uh, where it's become limited and more narrow-minded.
Are there examples that you could share in terms of where you think that multilateralism has become more inclusive for the world or for society? I think when you focus on women in particular, that you can see that international institutions have been very important. And in fact, one of the unfortunate ways you can tell is that sometimes people who aren't very sympathetic to feminism, for example, will think of international institutions in terms of what they call governance feminism. And they see them as being captured by the feminist movement even. So, you know, it's interesting. But for me, what that signals is the evidence of a really long history of women turning to international institutions, first the League, then the UN, in order to gain rights that they can't get at home in within nation states. And nation states, in 1919, when the League of Nations is set up, women are a really important lobby group and they are asking for specific rights and they're promoting the idea of the League of Nations. But, in fact, the answer of influential men like Woodrow Wilson is, well, you know, really women's rights are national concerns. So the French and the Americans are very clear on that. They mustn't be about, this is how a nation defines itself, by being able to decide what the rights of women within that nation are. Whereas, of course, the international context is, let's find some universal rights. Let's, let's establish the universal rights of women. And that's also the subject of debate through the 20th century, what those should be, the right to be the same, the right to be different, the right to you know, equal wages, or the right to stay at home, what is it? But the point is the debate and the forum. And I think that's been a really important dimension of this international multilateralism. And with that gone, we've also lost that capacity. You know, so is, has there been a retreat? I don't, you know, I don't know. I, you'd have to ask a political scientist what they think about the present, but I think it was a characteristic of 20th century multilateralism. Fascinating. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your, your work in gender history uh, later on in the episode, so we'll come back to this okay. question. But to, to finish off uh, what the, our discussion on this evolution in the past 100 years, are there areas from the past that you think we should be conscious of today? How do we remain conscious of this past as we, we move forward in international cooperation? I think it's really important that... So let me tell you, tell you a story about Australia, which for most of the 20th century has been a really important you know, mid-level power, regardless of the governments, in shaping these international multilateral institutions. At the League of Nations debate, the discussions about the League of Nations at the end of the First World War, it was Australia's involvement that led to the refusal of including the right to race equality in the League of Nations covenant. The Japanese and Chinese who had fought the war with the Allies asked for this racial equality clause, and it was Australia that led the fight against the inclusion of that. So we've had that kind of influence, the Australian government had, at the time had that kind of influence. In the 1940s, around the UN period, there was a different government, things had changed. And in that context, you know, the Labor Foreign Secretary at the time was an international lawyer named Doc Evatt, and he's become very famous for his role. He, he was at a certain point president of the General Assembly, but he also was important in, you know, putting forward an argument for international tribunals and for limiting the sovereignty of, or any incursion into the domestic sovereignty of states by these international institutions. So kind of a conservative move. 
We also at the same time had women like Jessie Street, who was an upper-class Australian woman who came to speak for Indigenous rights in that same context in the shaping of the UN. So we've got all these Australians fundamentally involved in the shaping of these international institutions, government level, popular level. Uh, If you read Frank Morehouse's fabulous literary trilogy uh, about the history of the League, the Grand Days, the Dark Palace, they're the two major books about the League. He's a novelist, but he's used archival sources. And it really gives you an insight, I think, a really good insight into how individuals, women and men, really engaged with these institutions in the mid, you know, early and mid-20th century. And yet, none of that is taught in our schools. You know, national history is taught as history of wars and the history of national developments, as if we've never been involved in those international institutions. And you can tell that same story whether you look at US history, which was, you know, the US was so important in shaping the UN. And yet, there's a kind of denial about that role. And I think one of the important things that we can do is capture and restore those moments and the extent of engagement and why that engagement went on, you know, why people thought those institutions and multilateralism was so important. Knowing, uh, so we've talked a lot now about being conscious of the past. Moving then to a question that could have many answers, how do you view the next 100 years of multilateralism? Where, where are we going? Where do you think we're going or where do you hope we're going? Well, it, no, again, I mean, historians, you know, aren't good fortune tellers, <laughs> unfortunately. And I think we tell the stories of the past not because we're nostalgic, because we think, oh, let's go back to the 20th century. The 20th century had a lot of problems. So, you know, and there have been shortcomings to national and international institutions, and I think we have to weigh them all equally. So the question is not about going back. The question is... Can we go forward understanding that the spectrum of ambitions for the international order, for multilateral institutions, for multilateralism itself have been so broad and rich and that we need to think about their importance in the everyday lives of individuals and the ways those institutions have had an impact and to understand how deeply knitted our lives are with the knowledge, the laws, conventions that have been produced by these institutions. Our understanding of ourselves in a global world, economic statistics, comparative studies, our understanding of ourselves, our capacity to imagine a better world has been so deeply tied up with these international forms of multilateralism that when we forget them, we get disorientated. We forget our capacity to dream a bigger dream. Wow. Okay. Moving back just a little bit uh, to to gender again. One of your research areas is gender history. Mm. Could you share with us, what does gender history mean? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean the history of women. So it does mean that you look at how institutions and ideas might impact men and women differently. And I think it's clear, you know, that uh, international institutions bear all the trademarks of nation states. So... The kind of they might have a bias towards male representatives or masculine issues, if you like. But I think the really important thing about international institutions, and I mentioned this earlier, is that you know they have been spaces where not only women but other disenfranchised groups have felt they could go to have a voice to the extent that 
in the, from the 70s on, these international institutions were often associated by those who had more power with those weaker constituencies, whether colonial or post-colonial peoples or women. So that's really interesting. And I think the kinds of agendas that they've had, including human security in the 1990s and afterwards, have shown that these institutions are able to reflect um, much of the gendered analyses of what's wrong with the world, how different how men and women experience the crises of the world differently and how their needs might need to be responded to differently in education and um, in context of wars, etc. And I have a new project that I think will help us understand exactly what the difference that women have made in these institutions is. We know that it's a kind of commonplace of historians who study women in institutions to know that there's a lot of them there, that they, they can find jobs there when nation states won't give them jobs, etc. And I really, I'm really interested in women economists through the 20th century. Women study economics from the early, from the late 19th onwards when the disciplines around, but they can't get jobs in academia in the same way as men or even in ministries, etc. So they often find themselves in kind of mid-level bureaucratic positions at the International Labour Organization, at the League, and later at the UN or the UN Regional Economic Commissions. And there have been some studies of the extent to which, for example, in the UN Latin American Regional Commission, the extent to which the role of women has shaped the agenda of that commission, making sure that questions of women's economic inequality are part of what they tackle and look at. So women make a difference as individuals, sometimes with economic training, sometimes with sociological training, in shaping and influencing the ways in which these institutions look at questions of economic inequality and rights. So I want to study women economists in international institutions to understand how their understanding of gender in economics has influenced the kind of economic policies that these institutions have produced. Wow. And and do you think that the progress that we've seen in, in recent history in gender representation, gender equality, will shape the evolution of multilateralism as we move forward? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, you'd count, again, would count it as one of the uh, more positive characteristics of 20th century international multilateralism. So thank you, Glenda. You've mentioned a little bit about your work now that you would like to, to, to study more mm. women economists. What else are you looking forward to working on next? Uh, well, I have a project that I want to pick up again. I started it before I did the book on internationalisms in the age of nationalism. In fact, thinking about this project led me to that book. I wanted to write a more general one, and I want to go back to it. And it's really about the early years of the UN, seen through the lives of a number of individuals, including Alu Mirdal, Rene Kassan, a Haitian who ends up in the in UNESCO, Emmanuel Gabriel, and Ralph Bunch, and understand how their private lives and public lives were caught up in the ambitions around the early years of the UN. One thing before we go, if there's one thing you hope listeners will remember from this conversation, what would it be? That international multilateralism has a really complex and important history, and that we need to remember it. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you, Natalie. Thank you.